Our passage this morning is taken from the end of Acts chapter 11. Hallelujah. I am glad to be done with uh, Romans, rather. Romans 11, excuse me. And uh, still I'm glad to be done with Romans 11. This is not the chapter I wanted to spend three weeks in and just couldn't get away from it. So we've spent these last three weeks, including this morning, in Romans 11. And there's still one last piece for us to see in this chapter, but I'm ready to move on to the other parts of the letter and what Paul says to us in them. But this morning we have one last piece of business to conclude with Israel and the Gentiles and their relationship with one another. So we will give it the attention that it deserves. Young theologians, young Christians will begin with you. Listen very closely and see if you can hear And then say back, what does mercy look like? We'll talk about mercy this morning. It's a word that we use, but now this morning we want to push a little bit farther. What does it actually look like? When we're merciful, what is it? See if you can hear it. This is the good news of Israel and the Gentiles brought to salvation in Jesus the Savior and God's mysterious, sovereign, and loving working. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel... They are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, They also may now receive mercy, for God has consigned all to disobedience and rejection that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. O Lord, from you and through you and to you are all things. And most especially we are grateful that from you and through you and to you is the gospel. And we heard it already this morning. You do not require us to sacrifice our children to you. Instead, you have sacrificed your son for us. And we're not to chase after soothsayers and fortune tellers to reveal to us what is hidden from our sight. But instead, we're to listen to the voice of God who speaks to us. He speaks to us. There's nothing for us to pull from your sealed lips From your open heart, you open your mouth and you speak to us the words of love. And we're grateful, Lord, for your truthfulness in telling us that we are sinners. 
and that we have a Savior who is greater than our sin in Jesus. And this morning, we long to see the beauty of His cross and His work on our behalf. And do what you have set out to do from the dawn of time, saving your people, Jews and Gentiles, and bringing them together to be your rejoicing, loving family, the church. And if you'll do all of these things, we will give you thanks. We ask it in the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Would you be seated? What we have in this passage is the same heartbreaking story that many of us have lived through on one side or the other. A child is born in love and choosing. And the child is cradled and rocked and fed and quieted in the middle of the night. And it's helped to take first steps and taught to walk. It's taught how to say its first words and then put them together. And skinned knees are bandaged and tears are wiped and kissed away. And the child is taught to throw and catch and kick in the backyard. And spelling words and math problems are drilled at the kitchen table. And good grades are celebrated and put up on the refrigerator. And when a baseball is thrown through the front window, a hand is put on the child's shoulder to reassure him. And in the middle of the night... When the child has a nightmare, there are strong arms to wrap up in. Or when a noise is heard, checks are made under the bed or in the dark closet. And when someone at school has said cruel things, hateful things, the parent whispers things about the child the child has never heard before, never knew the parent saw her like that. And then something awful happens. One day, the child steps over an invisible line and Jekyll turns to Hyde in a flood of hormones and change. And there are fights about grades and friends and boyfriends or girlfriends and curfews and college or no college. There are fights about clothes and hair and attitude. And suddenly, almost overnight, the child's parents are no longer healers and fixers and protectors And defenders and advocates, almost instantaneously, they have turned into obstacles and enemies and fools. They know nothing. They're embarrassing. Their wisdom is unwanted. Their authority is challenged. Their motives are suspect. Their love is... In all of it is questioned. And the child has outgrown the parents and wants distance from them and pushes away. The story that begins with baby blankets and bassinets turns to slammed doors 
and rejection. The story that begins with love turns to a story of rejection. And the story of redemption is no different. The history of salvation reads like a teenage saga. Jews and Gentiles in the salvation of God, it's all just a family drama. Promising firstborn children turn into disappointments. And there are black sheep of the family who somehow find their way home. And there's a father who's constant through all of it. And a baffling son, a firstborn son who never fails at anything and is the only one who can bring them all together again. The passage isn't really about Jews and Gentiles. We are participants and we are players, but we are not the subject and we are not the object of the passage. And we know this because the passage ends with doxology. After an entire chapter filled with all this difficult, challenging detail, Paul decides to close the chapter out by singing a hymn. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. The passage is telling us about ourselves. But more importantly, the passage is telling us about our God. And part of what Paul is telling us here is that the purposes of God haven't changed a bit. But his ways are mysterious. In fact, Paul opens the passage by calling all of this mystery in verse 25. So, these unchanging purposes of God, put together with his mysterious ways, mean two things for us. We can always trust our God, but we can never control our God, according to verse 36. We're from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory and to Him alone. Amen. So the mystery of our family drama as difficult and as perplexing and as painful as it all is sometimes is that it all comes from God and He is working in it. And it will all end with Him for His glory somehow. He is a God who allows nothing to escape His reach, even though He rarely puts things within your reach. And that's the secret to worship. Learning how to love a God who is reliable but cannot be controlled. But because of who this God is, there's a happy ending to all of this. We know the outcome. Paul tells us exactly what's going to happen in the end. The Heavenly Father will gather all His children. All of them. Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter. It says so in verse 26. The Deliverer will come from Zion. So salvation comes from Israel. The Messiah comes out of Israel. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. So salvation comes for Israel. And this will be my covenant with them. I will have kept my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So do you hear it? There is salvation for the Jews. The covenant is kept for them, not by them, 
for them. And Jesus, the deliverer from Zion, will be their covenant-keeping Savior and King. All Israel will be saved, Paul says. Now, that's not spiritual Israel, as Calvin says, I think. I think Calvin missed it here. And it doesn't mean all Israelites who have ever lived. Like it or not, there are judgment passages for unbelief. And what Paul refers to as that unbelief in this passage is hardening. For a time, Israel has been put under this season of hardening. This all Israel means historical Israel who are alive at the end. We will see the gospel of Jesus moving through Israel as the return of Jesus the Savior comes Near. There will be a time of reunion. There will be a restoration. And the Father will have his Jewish children and his Gentile children too. Because room has been made for them. That's mentioned in verse 26. The fullness of the Gentiles has to come in. This is how God's election from chapter 9 is reaching out for us. Here is what God has chosen with our our ability to know how it will all work, without our ability to know his mind in verse 34, without our ability to serve as his counselors in these matters, this is how you should do it, without our position as being those who have given to him something he didn't have already in himself, and so now he's obligated to do things to our liking but for his purposes this is how he works it out the jews have rejected messiah and the gentiles are embracing him and that's verse 30 for you gentiles were at one time disobedient to god but you have received mercy because of their the jews disobedience so we gentiles are the wedding guests from the parable. We're the party goers who weren't on the original guest list. We didn't have anything to wear to the wedding. We're the guests who shouldn't have been let in, but the invited ones were too busy. They had better things to do. They didn't want to come to the wedding. And nobody's more surprised at our inclusion than we are. Now that we're at the festival, now that we're at the feast, we wouldn't dream of leaving it. But Paul wants to see the Jews made jealous too. Not in a rival, competitive way, but in the sense of realizing what they're missing. All the promises, all the prophecies, all the purities that find their meaning in Jesus. Paul wants them to realize that they're They're missing the fullness of God in the cross and the resurrection and the pouring out of Christ's spirit from heaven. And in regret and repentance, he wants them to cry out and ask to be included. Bring us into the wedding. Admit us to the feast again. And Paul says, they will be. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. Their rejection of the gospel means the gospel has reached for you. 
But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. They're not forgotten. And election is still at work for them. The gospel will save them. You'll see. But for now, Jews reject the gospel. The Gentiles embrace it. And someday... Jews will be made jealous and they'll embrace it too. The gospel will have come full circle, coming out of the Jews, spreading to the rest of the world and finding its way back home to Jews. But remember, this this passage isn't a text of global domination and strategic conquest and diplomatic evangelism. This is still at its heart a family drama. And family can be difficult. The comedian George Burns once said, happiness is having a large, loving, close-knit family in another city. Why is it that that feels so right and so wrong at the same time? Jennifer and I were at a wedding once And it was time to toast the bride and the groom. And so grandfather labored to his feet and he stood before all the guests and he told a wildly inappropriate story that had nothing to do with the bride or the groom. But he had an audience and this was his favorite story so he was going to tell it. And another family had to call out to him and say, that's not why we're here granddad, your grandson's getting married. And he was disgusted at the correction, so he waved us off. Ah! And he sat back down. Family. (laughs) Why is it so hard? I think it is as hard as it is. And family can feel so often like suffering as it does. Because we aren't equipped to carry each other's sins. And we have no way to atone for each other, for the inappropriateness, for the offense that we do to one another. And so Burns is right. Family is best and happiest and easiest when we just stay apart. But here's where he's wrong. God knows how to gather all of his children to himself because he puts our awful alienating sin to death in himself. And that's where we're headed. We're headed for a family story that doesn't end in frustration and disgust and resentment and tears because it ends in our God. So the runaway children are all gathered up. And the orphan children who have been adopted, they're brought in too. And family that has never met is brought together and it feels like we were never apart. Family who haven't spoken in years now share the same words of rejoicing and love. And the father is there who refuses to be hurt by us. And he will not berate us for being disappointments to him. And he won't parade in front of himself and everybody else 
the ways that we've been disgraces to the family name, the multiple ways we've disgraced the family name. But instead, he'll pull us all close and he'll smother us with his reconciliation and his forgiveness and with this inheritance, this wild inheritance that we thought we had been cut out of ages ago. And it's all intact and waiting. The family we thought we had lost is the family the Father refuses to lose in Jesus. The family drama is everybody's story to varying degrees. When we're going through this chapter, we're not flipping through someone else's family album. This is a turn through our own. And it includes the Jews, those who lived closely with God. And then turned their hearts away from him and tried to cover it up just like Adam. And it includes the Gentiles, Adam's long distant children, the half brothers and sisters. Hardly known at all and those who know nearly nothing of God. He is all but forgotten. He's little more than a rumor and a fairy tale and a bedtime story to the Gentiles. But both will be gathered and brought home. Because we have all lived at the foot of the tree of Adam's rejection of God's love. We all need to live at the foot of the tree of God's rejection of Christ. The cross is a simple piece of carpentry that the whole universe hangs on. What's to be done about our fits and our tantrums and our tirades of, you don't love me, God, you've never truly loved me? What's to be done about our pushing away saying, I don't want you as my God anyway, I want a different God, I want a better God? The universe holds its breath because the questions are, should God judge us? Should he abandon us and have nothing to do with us? Or should he reach down and save us in love? And he answers by setting up a cross. The cross is the instrument God uses to turn rejection into mercy. And that's not some poetic interpretation of this passage, by the way. It's in the text. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That is, the gospel is for both Jews and Gentiles. Which is what the word all means in this context, by the way. Not every individual. But the verses leading up to this verse speak of two groups. Jews and Gentiles. And the all is including both groups. Salvation is for the children born in the covenant. And salvation is for the street orphans who are brought into the covenant. But both, for a time, are given over to rejection. So that both may receive something better. Both will receive mercy. Ah, it's beautiful. It's hard for us to understand. We always want to ask the question directly and on the 
surface of it. Why is it that the family story always has to be filled with strife and hardship and unbelief and suspicion and hurt and broken relationship? Why is it that the family drama always seems to play out like that? Why does the family story begin with love and then turn to rejection? And the answer is, so that it can end with mercy. That's the shape of real love. That's the strength of love. That's the nature of love. Love suffers and endures and pushes against rejection. That's the kind of love that our world needs to have carved into its emptiness. And so God uses his cross. That's the kind of love that our small heartedness and our unbelief needs carved into it. And so Jesus does it with his cross. Love reaches through rejection in order to touch us with mercy. Love chases through rejection in order to scoop you up in mercy on the other side. But why mercy? Why does it have to go like this? Why love followed by rejection and then ending with mercy? Why does it have to happen that way at all? Why the mercy of a Messiah pursuing us and rejecting flesh? Why Mercy pursuing us in suffering and sacrifice. Why mercy pursuing us into tombs where we try to shut out God's love? Because mercy is the only thing strong enough to kill rejection. Nothing else will work. Arguing, reason, threats, coercion, bribery. The only thing strong enough to overcome rejection is mercy. All those other things lose hearts, harden hearts. But rejection answered with mercy makes dead hearts come alive. So Paul, arguing against our conceit, arguing against our being wise in our own sight, says... Mercy is what the gospel looks like with skin on. How do you describe the life of Jesus ministering on earth? Mercy. And how do you describe the continuing life of Jesus on earth through his spirit in the church? Jesus living and ministering by his spirit through us. How would we describe that? Mercy. That's the gospel's answer to unbelief and autonomy and willfulness and arrogance and rejection. Mercy, mercy, mercy. But here's the trick, and you knew there would be one. Paul doesn't let us define what mercy is. This is very important for those of us who are older. And we've always been confused by mercy. We've believed in it. We've known that it's necessary And we want it both to be given to us and to extend to others. But we're never quite sure what it is. Sometimes it feels like softness and enabling. Making an easy, tentative peace in difficult, tense situations. So what is mercy? 
This is very important for those of us who are younger. And we put a primacy on the idea of mercy, but we have an entirely emotional definition of what mercy is. Our notion of mercy is so vague, you can't pin it down. It's completely subjective. So Paul doesn't let us define it. He says Jesus defines what mercy is. And he does it in the words of Isaiah the prophet up in verse 26. Mercy banishes ungodliness. That's it. Hard. Sharp. Well-defined. Deliberate. Personal. It is not impressionistic and cloudy and always up for grabs. It's not just being nice. It's more than that. It's being loving in the face of rejection. Mercy banishes ungodliness. It doesn't appease the childish or the upset or those kicking and screaming in fits. The mercy of Jesus looks like a cross and a tomb. Dying with him and rising in him so that we can abandon all of our familiar and comfortable and rationalized ungodlinesses. So that they can all be expelled and driven out and left with no authority or rightful place with us. You know, the most merciful thing you can do for each other is to help one another banish the ungodliness that lives in you. Help one another banish the sin that you see. Jennifer and I had great friends here at the church who have moved away now. We still keep close touch with them. And during one of our visits with them, these friends asked me what sins I was fighting. So I told them. I confessed my sin. Now when we get together and we visit, they never miss the opportunity to ask me about my fight with those sins. And I never feel judged. And I never feel put on trial. I always feel safe. I always feel loved. Because they are meeting me in my need with the kiss and the embrace of mercy. They're so passionate and eager to see Jesus banishing ungodliness from me. And if we're not willing to do that for one another as a church, then we are not a merciful church. What we're actually doing is rejecting each other at close distance. We're rejecting one another in close proximity. Do you know one of the most loving things that you can do for each other is banishing ungodliness from yourself. Do you want to love those around you? Mercy looks like you getting serious about your own sanctification, not laying low, hoping no one will notice, that no one will bring it up. They'll just excuse it and we'll all pretend it isn't there. That's not merciful. But what truly is would be for you to attack the ungodliness that you live most closely with. 
And Jesus will help you. He's the master of taking away sins. And lastly, Paul says, when mercy looks like this, others will see it and they'll want to be a part of it too. They'll want to come into the gospel themselves. Mercy that looks like this is evangelism, which is ironic because most of the time we try to hide the reality of our families from public view. And Paul says, ah, but when you're a family built out of Christ's mercy, there's no need to hide anything. Let them see ungodliness banished. And they'll hunger for it with you. Skeptics, this passage has two doors for you to choose from. The first door is in verses 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. How deep is it? How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his advisor? So, in other words, if you think you're going to figure God out, if you think God is a puzzle for you to solve and to master by your knowledge, that door slams shut. If, on the other hand, you need mercy and you need him to take away your ungodliness, your sins, to reach in and to gather you as his child, to bring you to himself, that door opens wide for you through Jesus. Two doors. You can only pass through one. When my mother was a teenager, she had a disagreement with her father, and she ran away from home. And after some detective work, my grandfather found that she was staying at a friend's house. So he walked over to the house and he rang the bell. And he asked to see his daughter. I love the way he did it. He didn't demand to speak to anyone. He asked if he could speak with her. He waited on the front porch while she came down from upstairs. And he said, I wanted to check on you and to make sure you are safe. And I wanted to give you this. And he handed her a folded wad of cash. He said, you're still mine to love and provide for. But for as long as you're staying here, make sure you pay these folks for letting you stay and for feeding you. I love you. He put his hat back on his head and he walked back down the block. And within the hour, my mother had repacked her suitcase and gone back home. And that's our family story. It has all the bitterness and all the drama, but it has that same ending. Because in the gospel, God has made himself the merciful father of runaways and orphans. And the rest of our family drama goes like this. Mercy beats rejection. Amen.
Lord Jesus, it comes to this. We are not truly merciful because our mercy does not look like yours. So forgive us. Thank you for not allowing our rejection of God's love and purity and faithfulness to stand, but thank you for pursuing us through our rejection and touching us with the mercy of the cross and the resurrection. And now we ask you to fill our hearts with that same quality so that we can be merciful after our Savior. That would be the sign of redemption. That is the sign of the gospel, Paul says, that others would see your goodness and your kindness and your love to us and the way we enjoy it, brought into the wedding banquet when we never should have been let in. And others will want to come in too. So now, kiss your church in mercy again and make us a church that looks like that. We could be busy about all kinds of other things, but we would have the gospel in great quantity if you would let us be a church that looks like this. And this is our hope. The mercy of God and the cross and resurrection of Christ beats rejection. Give us joy and songs and peace from it. We ask in Jesus our Savior.